Kev. Um, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. Um, classic, I managed to uh, forget to ask somebody to do the reading. And so just before I said, Kev, would you mind? And he said, yeah, of course. So thank you. I do appreciate you doing that this morning. We are in part four of part five, looking at the character, excuse me, character and nature of who Jesus is. We've had some really wonderful talks over the last few weeks, some inspiring challenge to us. Emily talking about Jesus, the friend of sinners, the one who comes and draws alongside those who are on the fringes of society and draws them right into the very center of his kingdom. And then last week, I think you'd agree with me, some GCSE A-star drama from uh, Rich Wood. Really wonderful. I was watching it. We had a residential weekend, so I was watching it back um, afterwards, and I loved his sort of like this and then this thing. So, um, but not just the acting. I mean, the talk was really good as well. Jesus shining a light, coming and um, bringing to light the things that are in the darkness, wanting to shine a light. The truth teller exposing things. And this week, just another small topic, Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. It's a short sentence, just six words, but 50% of the words in the sentence are the. The word the is doing a lot of heavy lifting in this sentence. I was talking to a friend the other day, someone who lives near to us, and uh, we were talking about how we were training for ordination. He's not a Christian. And he said, so if you're training to be a vicar, that must mean you're pretty religious, right? And I was like, well, yeah, I guess, kind of. Depends what, what does religious mean? And we had this conversation, it went on, and he was asking, well, you know, why, why do you follow Jesus? And do you just go to church on Sunday and then sort of live the rest of your life how you want to? And it got me thinking that actually in society today, we're, we're very much not in a Christendom sort of world anymore, are we? There's very much not a sense of God at the center of everything. We're very much in a world that is your way plus your truth equals your life. The, the center of gravity begins with you. But what Jesus, in, this is, in, in these um, words that he's speaking to the disciples, he's not saying to follow me is a way and a truth and a life. He's saying this is the way, this is the truth, this is the life. To follow after Jesus is not like going into a sweet store and getting a bit of pick and mix, you know, I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that, but I'll fit it all around my worldview and my way of doing things. And if I've got a bit of space and a bit of need for a moral compass, maybe I'll pat a little bit of Jesus around the edges. To follow after Jesus is subversive. It's to live differently to the way that the world works. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I always talk about him, um, partly because I've just written an essay on him um, for college, so I have all of these quotes swirling around in my mind, but he calls it the self-confessed I at the center of your own universe. I saw this picture on Twitter the other day. It's the first one of the two. The, uh, the end of Christian Britain as we know it. Mary and Joseph in a little stool set up somewhere in the corner of the train station, 
Baby Jesus not even lit, the wires trailing in front, how society has kind of forgotten the reason for Christmas. It's all about commercialization and buying things and celebrating the winter season. You know, we talk about things that are not even related to Christian faith anymore. It reminds me of when we used to live in China as well. At Christmas, they would literally get out the decorations for Christmas on the 24th of December, and they'd put them back in the box on the 26th of December, on Boxing Day. It was all about what can we use to promote more buying. The world is not really interested anymore in the person of Jesus, not in the sort of the big vastness of society, but I think people's hearts are longing for meaning. They're wanting to know what is my life all about. I was involved in helping on an alpha course recently at uh, Top Barn Farm. And people just wanting to know, well, what is life all about? Where can I find my meaning? Because we can't be at the center of our own universe. If you've got children or had children, I am absolutely certain that in reception, the first year of school here in England, they will learn about the planets, okay? And when they learn about the planets, inevitably, they will learn the planet song. Now, you might have heard this song. If you've never heard it, I'm going to sing a little bit of of it to you this morning uh, because it's a sort of song that goes around and around in my mind in the middle of the night, and it's infected. It's like a little earworm. Um, And I thought I'd do you the kindness of sharing it with you this morning. Um, And I know that every school in the country must sing this song because our children have been at three different schools for reception and they all come back singing this song. And it's on repeat in our house because the kids have worked out how to go, Alexa, play the planet song. So if you're thinking of buying an Alexa for Christmas, don't. That's my advice to you. Okay, so... There are eight planets in the solar system. We revolve around the sun. Join us to learn about the different planets. Now sing along and have some fun. You're shaking your head. You don't like that, do you? (laughs) Whether it's my singing or the song, I'm not sure. But the whole point is that at the center of the universe is the sun this big ball of gas upon which everything else revolves. It has its orbit. Everything hangs in its place in the solar system. And if, imagine for a moment that one of the the planets, say Mercury or Mars, imagine they say, well, actually, I don't want to have my orbit around the sun. I want to be at the center of the solar system. Everything would just go wrong, wouldn't it? Everything would fly, of course. Nothing would be in its place anymore. The song reminds us that it's not Mercury or Venus or Mars or Saturn or Jupiter or any of the others that are at the center of the solar system. It's the sun, S-U-N, sun. But at the center of our entire cosmos, all of the created order is the S-O-N, sun, Jesus. We cannot occupy the place of the center of the universe. Can you say it with me? I am not the center 
of the universe. I am not the center of the universe. And if you try, if you think that you're at the center upon which everything else revolves around it, frankly, you're deluded. You'll spend your whole life trying to make everything else fit in around you and your ways and your worldview. And I've been there in my past. I've thought, you know, everything else revolves around me. But we need a wake-up call, I think, sometimes to remember everything revolves around Jesus. John 1, those words that we'll hear so often throughout our carol services and the lead up to Christmas. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus at the very center. And we are who we are in the light of who he is. Jesus comes first. And you might be thinking, well, that's great. I know all of this stuff. It's not me at the center of the universe. It's Jesus. This is kind of like what you were talking about three weeks ago. Are you just recycling material? But all of this has a point. What does it look like for us today? You know, we know that Jesus was there at the beginning of time, creating through the word We know that he came and he laid down his life to give us freedom for our future, our trajectory of where we're headed. We know that he will come again one day and everything that is wrong will be set right. But what about this messy middle? What does it look like to live in the way and the truth and the life of Jesus at the moment? But I think Thomas and Philip, the two characters who are there with Jesus in this little excerpt from John's Gospel, I think they give us a pretty good understanding of what an authentic life of faith looks like, actually. Thomas asked the question of Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Philip pipes up, show us the Father, Jesus, And that will be enough for us. You see, at the heart of both Thomas's question and Philip's statement is uncertainty. They both want just a little bit more clarity. Thomas is saying, well, maybe if you show us the way very clearly, what steps we can walk in, then we'll know how we can follow after you. Philip is saying, I think I trust who you say you are, but if you could just show us the Father, if we could get a glimpse of the Father in our midst, then we'll know exactly who you say you are. They're uncertain of their future. There's so much uncertainty around us at the moment. We just have to look at another variant of the coronavirus to think, what what might the next three or six months or the next year look like? There's always uncertainty in the life of faith. But I think there's something a little bit deeper, actually, for Philip and for Thomas. And it's uncertainty about the character and nature of who Jesus says he is. Is he actually trustworthy? Is he who he says he is? Is he the way, the truth, the life? Or is he just a way, a truth? 
And I think it's the same uncertainty which was sown into the hearts of Adam and Eve when they were in the garden, when the serpent came up to them and said, did God really say? In other words, is God actually who he says he is? Is he trustworthy? And that uncertainty as to God's character and his nature, it's hardwired into us as humans, as fallen humans, to go, well, is he? He's been faithful in the past, but can he be faithful in this situation as well? He's done that thing for us before and provided, but what about this situation, this circumstance, which seems bigger, this mountain which is before me, which seems too big this time? But you just have to read your Bible and you see that any giant of the faith is someone who's uncertain as to God's character. Abraham, in Genesis 12, he's uncertain that God will protect him and Sarah from Pharaoh. So what does he do with Sarah? He says to Pharaoh, she's not my wife, that's, that's my sister. And she goes and lives with Pharaoh and then they find out later, whoa, hang on. You gave away your wife, and he probably would have been in a little bit of trouble for that, I imagine. And then what does he do again in Genesis 20? That's the same thing with King Abimelech. Doesn't trust that God can be their safety and their security. Moses, the man who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt through the Exodus to their promised land, God speaking to him directly. Moses' response isn't, yeah, we can do this. It's, I can't speak very well. Could you pick somebody else? And God, in his kindness, he provides his brother and he says, well, Aaron will be your mouthpiece on your behalf, but you're the person that I've called to lead the people. Gideon, the mighty man of faith, the man who said, well... I'll throw out my fleeces and see if God will kind of wet them from the dew. And if he does that, then maybe I'll do this thing for God. We see people over and over again, people who go, I'm not entirely sure, I'm not entirely certain about who God is. So back to our reading. In response to Philip's statement, show us the Father and then we'll know who you actually are. Jesus says, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Sometimes I think, well, it was all right for the disciples because they'd spent three years with Jesus, spending all of their time with him. You know, we talk about practicing the way of Jesus. Well, they were practicing it. They were doing everything. They knew all of the answers to the deep theological questions that I'm trying to wrestle with as I write essays on them at the moment. They knew what it meant to pray. They knew what it meant to be with him, to understand his ways. But even those who were closest to him were unsure. So I just want to remind us this morning that to be unsure as to the character and the nature of who Jesus says he is, it doesn't make you a bad Christian. In fact, it just makes you an honest one. We're not always certain about who Jesus says he is. 
When we talk about practicing the way of Jesus, it is exactly that. It is practicing the way of Jesus. It's not nailing the way of Jesus. It's not getting it right absolutely every single time like some kind of robot. We're going to get it wrong and we're going to doubt and we're going to worry and think, well, actually, can God do this? In my experience, when we're in that place, that's when God can come through. Faith and doubt are not opposites. They're two sides of the same coin. So practicing the way of Jesus. Recently, I got back into running. I haven't run probably for about five or six years, um, and Emily encouraged me. She said, maybe you need to go and do a bit of running or something as a bit of stress relief. And I used to hate running, okay? Really hated it with a passion. But I used to do it just to keep fit. And um, I thought that running is just a solo activity. I thought that it's just me and some tunes or maybe a podcast and the pavement and, you know, doing that whole thing. But what I've come to realize is that even running is a team activity, okay? And you need someone when you're running to encourage you. Now, I have got an amazing encourager, and that person is the person who led worship for us this morning, Ben Dunnett. Ben Dunnett is one of the fastest mid-40-somethings, early 40-somethings, we'll say, in the whole of Worcestershire, okay? He's fast with a capital F. And every time I would do the park run, because I did the park run, well, I say I did the park run with Ben. I mean, he was sort of like seven minutes ahead of me on the park run. But when I do the park run and I would get a personal best, Ben would be the person who would look at the results and then he'd send me a message on WhatsApp later on saying, you did it, boom, you know, and then fire exploding emojis. And I'd be like, yeah, one day I can be as fast as Ben Dunnett. <laughs> I never will be as fast as Ben Dunnett. But Ben would encourage me. He'd come alongside me and say, yeah, come on, you're doing well. And he's a person who I'd ask for advice. I'd be like, oh, I keep getting like really tight hamstrings. You know, what, what should I do? I've got an encourager. But at the same time, as Rich said last week, I've also got a truth teller. My wife, Emily. Everybody needs a truth teller of some sort or another. She's the person who, when I've gone out running four days in a row and my legs are really hurting and I'm complaining, and she's like, just take a break. Don't be stupid. <laughs> just go slower. Take it easy. We need, I think, in running, someone to encourage, someone to challenge. And I think, actually, most sports or any kind of activities are just the same. But how much more do we need it in our spiritual race as well? To have people who encourage us, who challenge us, who can speak to us and to sometimes have those hard conversations with us so that we can move forward in our discipleship. The people who we give permission to, to say, I want you to ask the difficult questions. I want you to inspire and challenge me because that's when we really grow. That's when we really get to know the way and the truth and the life of Jesus even more. <clears throat> so I'm not going to suggest any new practices of how we can do this this morning. 
You just need to look back through the archives of the talks. Rich gave some amazing talks, 2018, 2019, about practicing the way of Jesus. I mean, that feels about 10 years ago now, doesn't it? So long ago, 2018 and 2019. But look through them. There's wonderful, wonderful stuff there. We need to refresh ourselves regularly. But to get to know the character and the nature of Jesus, we do it through reading our Bibles, yes, coming to it day by day, looking at the scriptures, understanding the big meta-narrative from the beginning all the way through to the end, the encounters that Jesus has with friends, with people who are on the fringes of society, like we looked at a few weeks ago, where Jesus puts people back into their rightful place. So we do it through reading, we do it through speaking to him, through our prayer, as we come to him each day, pouring out the things that are on our hearts, open communication with him. But I think something that's absolutely essential is that we do it by gathering together as his people. This is the thing in this story from this morning, which is absolutely key. You see, this isn't just a conversation that's happening between Jesus and Thomas one-on-one. This isn't a conversation that's happening between Jesus and Philip one-on-one. It's not even Jesus, Philip, and Thomas having a little three-way conversation. Now, the chapter before is the Last Supper. It's all of them gathered together. They're all in that space. And I know it's difficult at the moment. I know that for those of you who are online at the moment, it's hard, and there might be anxiety about being together in the building, and I get that. But we need to find spaces and places where we can still continue to gather, to be the people of God in a joined up way. So John 13, at the Last Supper, they're all together. Jesus has predicted Peter's betrayal. Judas has just had Satan enter him. That's what the, uh, the words say. There's a whole lot of uncertainty that is going on in that situation. You see, in their last encounters with Jesus, they weren't nailing the way of Jesus. They were practicing it pretty poorly. And then they go on to the garden and Jesus says to James and Peter and John, he says, stay awake for a little while whilst I go and pray to the Father. And what do they do? They fall asleep. And then he comes back to them and he says, can't you stay awake just a little while? And then he goes off again and what do they do? They fall asleep again. Do you see what I'm trying to say? These are not spiritual giants in their last moments with Jesus. They're getting it kind of wrong. So after Thomas and Philip's conversation with Jesus, come on to that section which I alluded to a few weeks ago. They're pretty lost. They're pretty at sea. But Jesus says, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit the helper, the one who'll come alongside you, the one who will show you the way, the one who points to Jesus as Jesus points to the Father. He's saying, 
It's the spirit you need in your midst. He's the one who you follow after. He's the one who will inspire and encourage you. So where is the spirit? Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered. The spirit comes and dwells amongst us and leads us onward. And so these uncertain, very fragile, very human people, Philip, Thomas, Peter, they all go on to do incredible things for God. Why? Well, because the Spirit comes upon those people who feel ill-equipped, those people who feel like they don't know how to practice the way of Jesus, how to live in his way and his truth particularly well, but people whose hearts are open to him, vulnerable and open, humble hearts that say, Lord, I want to know you more want to know your ways. So when we come together as the church body on a Sunday morning, whenever we meet during the week, we do so not just as a people who are part of the same kind of club. We're not just enthusiasts about Jesus. We're people who want to know who he is more and who want to be sent out in his mission and mandate to go and see the whole of our society changed and transformed. The church is the place where we encounter the living Lord Jesus as we read his word, as we kind of expound the scriptures, as we pray together and call out the things that are not right in our world and say, God, would you change them? The way that we come together and sing our worship, it's our theology as we bring it to God and say, this is who we believe you are. When you say you are this, we give it our yes. When we meet together around the communion table and take bread and wine, we remember the story of Jesus being with his disciples, the way we look backwards to the upper room and we look forwards to the banquet at the end of time. And we remember that in the middle, it's still messy and still a bit broken, but that God can work through messy and broken. We learn about the way and the truth and the life of Jesus by doing it and being together. We discover the mandate and the mission of God to join him in the renewal of not just some things, but in the renewal of all things. To know Jesus and to make him known in our communities and our schools and our workplaces, our places of influence. As we come to finish, two quotes. First is from Leslie Newbegin. Um, it's from this book, which was kindly given to me. Um, it's kind of falling apart now. Um, I don't know if that was mostly my children. Let's blame the children. Um, given to me so kindly by Hazel, one of our community here at All Saints. And um, she had the privilege of being taught by Leslie Newbigin. If you don't know who he is, an amazing missionary bishop who felt the call to go over to India and they started something called the Church of South India, which was a group of different denominations who came together and said, actually, we want to be united in our worship. 
And so they started the Church of South India, of which he became one of the bishops. And they lived as missionaries, he and his family, for a couple of decades. And then felt God called them back to the UK to invest in theological training. So he and his wife, they packed up three suitcases and they traveled in buses from India all the way back to England incredible people of faith and wrote so many wonderful things. And in this book, The Light Has Come, which he goes through the entirety of the Gospel of John, it's well worth reading. I'll put it on the list of things you could look at in the notes for life groups. He said this, page 181, like all human beings and like the whole human family seen as one company of travelers, We're on a road which disappears out of sight. But when we are totally identified with Jesus, made one through baptism and the Eucharist with his dying and his risen life and living out our baptism and our Eucharist in daily love and obedience to the Father, though we do not know what lies ahead, we are on a track which we can trust and gives us a way through the curtain. This is discipleship following after Jesus. Corrie Ten Boom, she said, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. So how can we know God? By knowing Jesus. How can we know Jesus? By encountering his spirit.